the September edition of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood evidence-based section, Archimedes. What do we do on this podcast? Well, we tell you all about the best way of doing evidence-based medicine. Actually, that's a slight exaggeration. We talk about ways of doing evidence-based medicine in a better way than you might have thought of, but you might have already thought of a better way in the first place, in which case, do get in contact with us. And it has a little section on something to do with evidence-based medicine, and then usually a couple of cases where somebody has gone away, searched the evidence, appraised it, and come back with a clinically relevant conclusion from all the evidence that they can find. This month, we're thinking about recurrent cold sores and the problems of colic, but we're starting off with an area that is of great debate to most people, the use of experts and evidence. Every now and then, you read something and it chimes with you to illuminate a niggle that you weren't really sure was there. And then the flash of understanding that follows can really give you some delight. This can be seen in really good qualitative research, as can maybe fiction or drama or an off-the-cuff comment dropped by one of your colleagues. And rarest of all, the output of an actual working group. Now, the GRADE gang, that's the uh, group that have been working now for a few decades to improve and refine our understanding of how guidelines in the clinical practice context should be created. They, They have come to try to make these concrete, odorless slabs of do must into something meaningful and fluid and understanding of the nuances of actual clinical medicine. The The guidelines themselves are still rather ugly and unsubtle often and almost always colourless. But there has been a reliance on on trying to make the the raw evidence relevant, just like any other facet of evidence-based medicine. And that's bringing together the science with the clinical expertise and the individual patients. And within this, defining how far an expert can and should influence a decision has been really tricky. Now, what the group have recently done, um, and I would encourage you to go on the website and click through to the link, um, is, is published on differentiating the way that experts can add value to a guideline. They can bring their experience and expert knowledge, and they can also bring expert opinions. And, and this is important to be clear about the difference. Now, I've seen well over a dozen cycles of melphalan used. Now, melphalan is a very unpleasant chemotherapy. We use it before certain types of stem cell transplantation. And, and in doing that, I have more experience than the published evidence of children's melphalan use in terms of nausea and vomiting. That experience I bring, seeing the immense amount of nausea and the horrible vomiting that can happen, despite loading with antiemetics in many cases, gets me to the point of having an expert experience that says melphalan is a drug which produces quite a lot of nausea and vomiting. I have an opinion that melphalan is a nasty, a metagenetic drug, and we need to be very much on guard against it with really good antiemetics and rescue medicines. Now, that opinion neatly derives from the evidence that I bring and supports the published evidence. I also have an opinion that Morris dancing should not be undertaken by any human. I have never Morris danced. 
this is an evidence-free opinion, and it's also slightly untrue, in that I did once dress up as a Morris dancer for a two-year-old that really wanted to see me dancing, and that was what was being persuaded. But that doesn't really count. Anyway, back to the expert opinion and expert evidence. When we're doing guideline creating, or if we're doing evidence-based medicine with patients, we need to be very clear about what we are bringing, how our expert experience differs from our expert's opinion. They are linked, yes, but they should be linked and aligned. Expert evidence is different than expert's opinion. Let's be really clear about this and make our evidence-based medicine better. Now, the first of our topics today is on the problem of recurrent cold sores, recurrent herpes simplex labialis. This is from Laura Pittet and Nigel Curtis, who are both at Melbourne in the university in the children's hospital there. They talk about an adolescent who's having lots of recurrent cold sores, one a month or more. And is there a benefit from carrying on taking a cyclovir, which is good to treat the cold sores, but to take it long term as a way of suppressing the viral replication and stopping it coming out in the first place? They went away and they searched a wide variety of different databases to try to draw back the best evidence available. And they came up with over 2,000 potential hits. This fell down to only three randomised controlled trials and one cohort, a very small cohort, in adolescent patients. The three RCTs were all in adults and used slightly different drugs. The biggest one was 98 adult and used valcyclovir. The next one was 76 and that was a crossover trial so everybody got there so maybe you should consider that the biggest one. And the smallest one was 22 and that one used acyclovir. The cohort was only four adolescents but in that one they showed that the adolescents were experiencing an average of seven relapses a year on prolonged treatment went down to only two relapses a year. They've shown that the evidence is really quite impressive for dropping the rates of recurrent disease enormously um, when it's carried on in a longish term. It's difficult to know how long for, it's difficult to know for definite if it produces resistant disease, but it doesn't seem to on these studies that we've looked at. Bear in mind that we're only really looking at a couple of hundred patients here though, uh, and in order to spot side effects, that would miss something that was even prevalent at about one and a half percent of the population if that was to occur. So there are some challenges with understanding this. There clinical bottom lines which derive directly from this evidence are that oral long-term suppressive therapy with either the acyclovir or the valacyclovir does reduce the frequency but also the severity and duration of episodes of recurrent cold sores but has not been tried in adolescents or in children just in adults. There is direct evidence but in a non-randomised way that oral valacyclovir reduces the frequency in adolescents but in many of these situations we're in the same situation of knowing exactly when to start how many is recurrent enough which one to use what dose to use and how long to go on for before you stop and have a go is really really difficult and there's no clear answer to any of those questions we still need to do more research to find out the answer to those. Now taking a turn in a completely different direction, a group of doctors from the University Hospital of General de Catalunya in Barcelona in Spain, including Dr. Rivas Fernandez, Dr. Iquerazdo, Dr. Calazera and Dr. Balega, all came together to write 
Archimedes' topic about the use of probiotics for colic. Now, I'm sure many of us will have experienced a young baby who really will not settle, continually fussing and crying, and that's what's often described as colic. There's a good argument to talk about whether we should be using that particular phrase or not, but we understand the clinical situation and the presenting symptoms that are being discussed here. What they did was they went away and they looked widely again to try and pull together the best evidence to see if probiotics made a difference to colic. And what they found was that there was an individual participant data meta-analysis of four studies in 345 infants. Now, the thing about IPD, individual participant data meta-analysis, is it's not just taking the information that's published within the studies themselves, which are often a cut-down version of what the study actually was, but they go back to the individual trial elements and then pull those together. In doing that, you can get a much more clearer estimate of how something works or doesn't work, and you also have the ability to look at subgroups, hopefully pre-specified subgroups, to see if it works better in some groups of patients than others. Now, this has been tried extensively and usually comes back with a bland answer of not really. But what they did here was, using validated scales to do with infant fussing and crying, they showed that that on a duration of three to four weeks, using Lactobacillus ruteri DSM17938, there was a reduction of around about two-thirds of the babies that had crying episodes, by the reduction being dropping to to 50% or less. Um, And the subgroup that it seemed to work in was the babies that were breastfed rather than the babies that were bottle fed. This then went on to produce a further randomised control trial where they used a higher dose of probiotic and they used it for 30 days. And this also showed a drop to approximately one third with a success criteria being more than 50% reduction in crying episodes over that period of time. Now, this is really quite interesting. One of the issues that we should think of with probiotic studies is that they often try to clump together different sorts of probiotics. That hasn't happened here. Sometimes people use non-validated measures. That hasn't happened here. And then sometimes what we find is that when very large studies are done in the hundreds and thousands of, of infants, that we find that they are not as supported as it was with the small studies. And and this happens time and time again, unfortunately. However, if you look at the evidence that exists at the moment, then this particular probiotic, Lactobacillus ruteri DSM17938, does decrease the average crying time of babies with infantile colic if those babies are breastfed. But the uncertainty is around exactly how long you should do it for, what exactly the dose should be, and really does it work in breastfed infants only, or does it work in bottle-fed infants, which were a smaller proportion of the study? So are we actually having an issue here where we have a smaller number of babies, and that means we're not seeing an effect because the number's too small? It's essentially underpowered answer. Well, very different Archimedeses can get you published, and why don't you 
come up with an Archimedes of your own. There must be clinical questions that happen to you on a day-to-day -day basis that you don't know the evidence for, and you are uncertain of what the right thing to do is. Why not crack on and follow instructions to authors off the website and submit to our friendly and helpful editorial team? And then we'll see what we can do. The best thing about the Archimedes section is that it seems to be generated from real people doing real questions in order to really improve the way that we practice evidence for children and young people. So until next month, thank you very much for listening.